So this is the second or third talk of July 2013, the time being Shoshin. As we give these Dharma talks, there are many, many things said in them, and they are talking to different people. So it's not as though everything is said in a Dharma talk applies to you. There are people working on lots of different facets. Everybody is a different person. And while we all have a common denominator of our own humanity and our own awareness, nonetheless, each person's karma is very unique. So as I'm talking and pointing out and guiding in different ways, if something is relevant for you, if it strikes you, great. If it has no relevance for you and it just goes zing by, that's okay. <clears throat> so not everything is a proper, applicable to everyone. Not everything has um, certain truth to it. So our lives are momentary. And before we know it, young people have become middle-aged. And middle people have middle-aged people have become old. This very body is a ceaseless movement of time. So this session began a few days ago. And that time is gone. There was a period before this talk that's gone. The period before this talk is forgotten. How would you distinguish it from all the other dozens or hundreds of periods? Gone. And looking back at all those days in our lives, we've gone to work, the difficult times. done hundreds of weeks of session. There's not a trace left of anything. The mountains of food we've eaten, digested and excreted, all gone. So that's one very clear truth that as Mukayan says something like, you're moving, the finger having writ moves on, where all your power or wit can wash away a word of it. Something like that. Can't change a single solitary thing of the past. On another hand, though, everything we have done, the past is completely with us, right here every single solitary decision that we've made, every single experience and event that, that has happened to us, every bit of food that we've eaten, everything is right here. Because this is not only the culmination of all those things, but each of those things have left its imprint in us. A mature person is mature because of all that life experience that's still there. 
like driving across country. At each intersection, we make a choice, and every single choice matters. We go on the freeway, the back roads, around the town, through the town, stop and see this side or that side. Every single choice we make shapes the nature of the trip. There's the northern route in the winter, the southern route in the summer. Very different experiences. And the trip includes all of those things. And the destination would not be possible without every single solitary individual moment of that trip. This is the same thing is true with our lives. Every single solitary instant, decision, experience of our entire life is vital, is important, and in a way is here right now. Now, there are many kinds of session, as you most of you know. So in this particular session, whether in some sessions we focus on the destination, we focus on vow. You know, I vow to make it to New York City. I vow to become awakened. Some we focus on choice, the ethical foundation of the bodhisattva vow of bodhicitta. In some session, we focus on the vital activity of the heart, the loving kindness. And there are other kinds of sessions most people know. But the emphasis of this particular session is on the wholeness of this experience, on the wholeness of our breath, body, awareness, and world, on the wholeness of past, present, and future. And we use attention, attention, the miraculous Mysterious attention, the incomparable, unknowable breath as the entrance gate. Attention is the core, the common denominator of every single person's practice. And depending upon your particular flavor and nature, each person has a different way of working with attention. It's very important that as you're giving all these teachings, Jogan is teaching, you're doing Dharma talks, you're coming to Sanzen, it's very important that you're clear about what practice you're doing. Because if you try to do every single practice that's mentioned, it gets a little confusing. But if you're doing the pro- one practice, if you're really staying with one thing, you're staying with one thing, you're working with it, working with it, working with it, then things will hit you very differently. You'll open up in a very different way. And if you bop a little bit here and boop a little bit there and pop a little bit over here and just kind of go back and forth and around. So stay with your practice. And if a teaching is vital and relevant, it'll strike a chord. If it's not relevant, as I mentioned before, just let it go there. So right now I'm talking partly from the rational mind. Because the rational mind has to be satisfied. If the rational mind is not satisfied, we don't, we can't make the leap of faith. We can't make the jumping into the flow of practice as well. 
But if you're not practicing, with, if the rational mind isn't your issue, if you're deeply engaged with Mu, you're deeply engaged with awareness of some sort, that's not a matter of the rational mind. So ignore this kind of thing. So we start off with time is a whole. We are whole. All things are whole. Whole. Now, if we examine this right now with our attention, if you hold your attention open right now, these words, Words, your spacings, words, the sound of traffic, the sound of the breeze, silence. Moment by moment, instant by instant, there is experience. So, how long is a moment? You always are saying there's only this moment to be here now. How long is this moment? So open your awareness, breathe, look into your practice, and see for yourself what is a moment of practice. How long is this present? The present moment is not about something that's already happened. So it's not about the past. So as you look at the present moment, anything that's already happened doesn't count. If you let go of anything that's already happened, like the beginning of a breath, and you look at the present moment, what do you see? Now, the future is just a big black unknown. There literally is nothing there. We have in our mind lots of possibilities, lots of probabilities, lots of fantasies. But if we stop the mind and we're not busy generating our fantasy of what's going to happen next, and we look at this moment right here, right now, There's absolutely no future. It is a big blank wall. This moment is not about something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Because a beginning is already past. End hasn't yet come. As we know, if you look directly, there is no future. The mind, of course, is generating all sorts of ideas and thoughts and probabilities. But if the mind 
you stop to really look directly at this instant, right here, right now, has not yet arisen. When it arises, it's now. Now, as you are breathing, you take a breath, you look at this moment, and you let go of memory. Memory about what was, that's just a mind spinning in your head. You let go of all the memories that what was already. And you acknowledge the non-existence of the future. And you look right now. say there's nothing there, it denies the reality of our own experience. You say there's something there, what is it? No past, no future. This particular Experiment is one you can do anytime in Zazen. You turn the mind off. You let go of all memory. Let go of all fantasy, projection. And you look and see what's left. In the old days, in the old teaching, they used to say time flies swiftly than an arrow. But the arrow is probably about as fast as things are perceived as going. And now, you might say that time moves more swiftly than light. But if light travels at the, at the, at the speed of light, it goes half an inch. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The end is gone. The future hasn't come. Where's the light? This intimate experience cannot be put in a box. It can't be figured out. Thinking, memory, fantasy, projection... the experience. Now, some people have a little trouble stopping the mind. It doesn't have to be for long. It's just an instance, all it takes. Of course, this is not an ultimate teaching. This is just an expedient means here. One way you can stop the mind if you're having trouble with that is you take a deep breath, you let it out, long and slow, and then you hold the breath. You don't move. While you're still, you look. No 
Jesus instead. There's no past, no future. I'm holding completely still. No memory of who I was. No fantasy of who I'll become. What am I? Another way that's a little more also available is if you can just stop the mind. Just say, stop thinking for a while. Shut up. And of course, the mind will come back. It's the very nature of the mind to think. So of course, our goal is not to kill the mind. That would be stupid. But when we can part the waters a little bit so we can take a look at something, really interesting. What is this moment? What is this life? What is this particle of me? Now take another moment. You can hold your breath, stop the mind. Turn your eye right to this instant. And in that instant, there are two things. There is a tingling life awareness, a vital quality that can be experienced. It does not have a beginning or an end. And of course, there is awareness itself. So try that over and over again. Stop the mind and look. However you can do that. It is a very genuine experience of the kind of timeless realm, very genuine experience of the unconditioned. Conditioning is all about behavior and thought. In that place, everything stops. And it's interesting to do that with all of the the great principles of, of Dharma. You stop and you look. In that instant, what is it that's alive? What is it that could die? Where's my mind? Where's time? these kinds of exercises are expedient means to help us really see that the stories that we're always telling ourselves about our success and failure, about who we are and who we'll become, are very, very limited. That there are truths that are going on, there are truths that are present, there is truth before the mind recognizes it. 
before the mind understands it, before the mind even perceives it. Before the mind can put it in a box and talk about it. Stop the mind. Again, this is an expedient means. This is not the ultimate truth. But it's a very interesting way of <clears throat> beginning to see something beyond our ordinary mind. We've been talking a lot about the breath in many different ways. And if we look at the breath very carefully, even over time, just in this instant. In this instant, there is no breath. If you stop the mind and you look in an instant, there is no breath. Because the breath is movement. And movement has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The breath is just movement. If you actually stop the mind and look, there is no breath. But that's, again, only a temporary teaching because, of course, we breathe goodness. But if we look at the breath, it's not a thing. People think, oh, the breath is this exchange of air. Well, the actual experience of air is very limited. You might feel your nostrils and your nasopharynx change temperature. You might feel a little quivering of the hairs of your nostrils. But I don't think many people feel air inside them. They feel body changes. They feel body expanding. They feel temperature. So the first place with working for the, with the breath is first off, forget about air. That's just an idea. Look at what is the direct experience of movement. Now, if we're looking at the breath carefully as movement, we can either attend to the side that is moving. If I move my arm around, I can pay attention to the arm. Or I can feel and become aware of the sensation of movement itself. We can become aware of how things are expressed, or we can be aware of the intimate experience making an arbitrary distinction here right now, which is, again, expedient means. We can do the same thing with awareness. We can be aware of movement, or we can turn our mind back on awareness itself. It's like the example that we use of a child with a flashlight. This particular practice is not the view of the child. It just sees everything swirling around. 
that's not the view of the of the objects the flashlight illuminates. It's not even the view of the flashlight moving all over the place. It is the view from the light itself. And if a child is throwing a flashlight all over the place, the light itself is always just light. So when we're working with breath at this this kind of level, first we let go of any idea we have about breath. And then we look at the movement of the body as it breathes. We watch the movement of the body. Now there are different levels of movement. There is the physical movement of the musculature, and there is an energetic movement of a tingling movement inside. You can watch either of those. Or we can turn and watch ourselves watching the breath. These are all types of breath practice. So with breath practice, we can look at it from one facet. We call it like this facet. It's not hierarchy. It's talking about facets like the facets of a jewel. We look at it from one side, and our goal is just to be present with the breath, to feel the breath in a very, very ordinary way, to allow ourselves to calm down, to feel the breath as a soothing presence. Or we can look at the breath as this nowness of experience. We stop the mind and look at the breath. We see the nowness of experience. Or we can do the same thing. We can work with the breath, look at the breath, watch the watcher. It does not change. Some people have said, they come in and said, oh, I'm doing basic breath practice. Breath practice is not basic. We're just touching little bits of breath practice here. Breath practice is about this deep awareness of what is alive. And the ultimate koan that we all get to deal with is birth and death. And until we have some understanding of what is it that's alive, it's not a thing, what's alive, we can't begin to approach this question of our own death. We don't even know what's alive in us. But one of the ways of doing that is by looking at this essence of life that is flowing through us all the time and looking at it in more and more intimate and subtle ways. So we can say that this breath practice has got several stages to it. So there's the first practice, which everybody knows is that, first off, that you have an idea what the, what the practice is. That's the first thing. Secondly, so, so we now know what to direct our attention to. We direct it to the breath in every sense of the word. You know? Every sense of the word. And then we are continuously returning to the breath. So first off, we start off, and the mind just jumps in, and we find out a half an hour later, oh, yeah, I forgot to breathe, and we go back, and you know, gradually that becomes every 15 minutes, every 10 minutes, every 5 minutes, every 1 minute. We return, we return, we return. 
And then, as we exercise that returning muscle, we begin to actually hold our awareness on the breath for little periods of time. I can feel one whole breath. Maybe I can even stretch it to two breaths. Maybe three or four breaths. Maybe one time I did ten breaths and now I'm back to half a breath. And I just keep returning. And, uh, and the, the attention becomes, it begins staying longer and longer. Also, the stream of thought, as we're staying longer and longer, the stream of thought begins to be broken up. You know, normally, in our ordinary mind, it's just a continual stream of thoughts and images without a break. But as we come back to something like the breath, there are little breaks in that. It becomes more spotty. Or there are thoughts, but they don't go off into a mega fantasy. They don't go off, what's going to happen to me 20 years from now? But we catch them as they go off just a little bit. And so we direct the mind, we return the mind, we learn to stay partially, and we gradually increase our ability to stay partially, to stay with the breath, until it becomes very intimate, that we're not looking at the breath from the outside, but we're beginning to know the breath from the inside as it breathes. We can actually look and say, how am I doing? And that's okay. We say, how am I doing? Am I, am I concentrated or am I not concentrated? If I'm not concentrated, my, breath, my mind is really patchy, well, I'm going to set myself a standard of two breaths. I'm going to set a standard of three and a half breaths, 20 breaths, whatever, whatever we can do. And then we gradually learn to increase, to, ins- to, to practice the ability to stay with the breath. When we actually have the experience of awareness of the breath from inside the breath, from inside motion, that's a little different experience. That means we're no longer up here in our head looking down there at the breath, but we're now beginning to feel the breath from within the body itself. Because, of course, we are the body. What else could we be? That's a different kind of intimacy. Intimacy with the breath. The breath is my life, not the breath is some thing that's down there in the body. And there's another, there's many points beyond that, point of great calmness, where we begin to actually touch samatha, we begin to actually touch calm abiding and tranquility. It's usually rare, it's rarely helpful to judge where you're at in spirit and spiritual practices because first off, you don't have any idea. Secondly, you can't judge by what you don't know. Third, the great mystery is unknowable, so what standard could you have to judge it by? But, you know, being Americans, North Americans, we all like to pick up some fantasy thing and compare ourselves inadequately to it. you can make a judgment about this. Am I really practicing staying with it? Because what we do over and over again, how we practice is, in a way, what, what the results come from. We've had people in the Zendo here who practice being asleep for an entire session. Hmm? There it is. And, of course, 
results are. You get the results of being asleep for an entire session. You're very rested, even. So it's whatever we're practicing, if we're turning our attention to awareness itself, and awareness itself is what we're holding, the sharp, vivid awareness itself, then that becomes what is real. So it's not helpful to practice unskillfulness as much as possible. So you practice returning, you practice being in the present moment, you don't practice writing novels, you don't practice having relationships. You don't practice all those other things that we could be doing in our minds, which actually never turn out to be the way they are, when we fantasize about them. You simply practice being alive and being present and seeing what is really intimate. It's our whole life. This is not easy. And no one ever said it was easy. And practically part of the reason that the deep spiritual path, the path of practice, is the road less traveled, is because not only is it mysterious, and you need a certain kind of guide, but it also is hard. It's hard to sit here. There's an extraordinary group of people who can sit and practice in this way for a week. Extraordinary. In the realms of Human beings, just sitting still for half an hour is extraordinary. Looking at our own mind and realizing, oh, maybe there is actually an awareness that's bigger than my opinions of myself and the world. Extraordinary. Extraordinarily good karma. But if, so if we are sitting here and we're really practicing this returning, practicing intimacy, there are some clear benefits. Just as if somebody has the benefit of sleeping for a week or being critical for a week, that, you know, we've seen it a few times, it doesn't see happen so much anymore, but sometimes people will come and go, you're self-critical for a week. And after a week of self-criticism, they want to kill themselves. And that's the result of it. So that's not skillful or helpful. So it's good to interrupt that with these kind of practices we're talking about. And what are the benefits of these practices? First off, if you do that, you become much calmer. There's an equanimity. Energy is freed up. All of you who have been to Sishin know what it's like the last day. There's all this juice flowing. Clarifies what's important to us often. There's a confusion in our mind. has settled down. Anytime we have any direct experience, it touches the foundations of faith. Helps us be present for our life. Be alive to our own life is a great benefit. Cuts doubt. Resolve conflict. Because if we actually can see both sides of something, it's not in conflict anymore. And there may also be deep, life-changing insights. All of these benefits are side effects. Luminous light, bliss, feelings of oneness, feelings of this is it. They're all side effects of the practice. They're not the goal of the practice. If we think of them as the goal of the practice, it's like somebody who wants to build a house but says, I only want the third floor. 
I don't want the first three floors. The third floor is a result. It's not quite a byproduct, but you have to do the first three floors. So insight is not something that we say, okay, I'd like that insight, give it to me. It doesn't work that way. Insight is a gift. Insight is grace. Insight is an offering. And we prepare the ground by this diligent practice. Please have faith in yourself. No one is broken. Personalities could use some improvement, that's for sure. Behavior could use some improvement. But that which is our essence, perfect. So this wouldn't be the Zen tradition without talking about koans a little bit. And so I'll talk a little bit about a koan from uh, the Hekigan Roku, the Blue Cliff Record, one of the great collections of koans. This is case number two. The ultimate path is without difficulty. And the koans have usually several parts. There's a, there's a case, there's a preliminary poem, there's also a commentary, other poems. There's a lot of different kind of teachings woven around the main central part of the koan. But we'll talk about this particular one. Here's the introduction, or the pointer, as it's called. Heaven and earth are narrow. Sun, moon, and stars all at once go dark. Even if blows of the staff fall like rain and shouts roll like thunder, you still haven't lived up to the task of the fundamental vehicle of transcendence. Even the Buddhas of the three times can only know it for themselves. The successive generations of ancestors have not been able to bring it up in its entirety. The treasury of teachings of the whole age cannot explain it thoroughly. Clear-eyed, patched-robed monks cannot save themselves completely. When you get here, how will you ask for more instruction? To say the word Buddha is trailing mud and dripping water. To say the word Zen is a face full of shame. Superior people who have studied for a long time do not wait for it to be said. Late-coming beginners simply must investigate and apprehend it. Now, this is just the introduction to a koan, which in itself is filled with all sorts of koans. What do these mean? They're all, it's all talking about states of mind. So what a koan is, is a, a case, a poem, an exchange with people about a state of mind. It might be a dialogue between two people pointing at a state of mind. It might be a case like this pointing at a state of mind. None of it is about somebody else. So when he says at the beginning of this pointer, heaven and earth are narrow, what is the state of mind that all of the heavens and all of the earth comes into one small place? What is it that contains all of the heavens and all of the earth? For sun and moon and stars all at once go dark creates the sun and the moon and the stars? 
this is not about somebody outside, somebody up in the air waving a magic wand and suddenly there are these things out there. This is about our own intimate, direct experience looking at the source of all things. What is the source of all things? It isn't someplace else. So the sun, the moon, the stars, the whole galaxy is something that is arises from something very intimate. I chant that line that's so lovely in the sutra we do in the morning. Stone woman gets up dancing, wooden man starts to sing. Same thing. How do stones dance? How does wood sing? Point at the same place. Even if lows of, sta- of the staff fall like rain and shouts roll like thunder, those are just uh, allusions to some old Zen teachers, Linja, Linji, Rinzai, used to teach people by shouting. He would just say, "What is the you know?" And they would say, "What is the present moment?" Ah! Give a shout. He'd say, "Okay, there it is." And so he would very vividly and very directly say, "It's all right here. It's not someplace else. It's all right here." Would be talking, talking, talking all that day. So that would be one of the ways that he would shout and shout. It's right here. It's right here. What here? What heard that? What heard that? What heard that? What felt that? So this is just referring to his particular way of teaching. It's a way of teaching. Some people can do that. Some people can't. That's not the way we teach here. And the other is Toksan. Toksan is noted for hitting people. People would come and you know they'd say, well, what is the truth? And he'd go, whack. What's being hit right now? Feel it. So he's just referring to different ways of teaching. And over the course of the last millennia, there's been lots of ways of teaching. Some people teach completely conceptually, which, you know, I think we have a hard time pointing to the non-conceptual. And some people have different ways of trying to express the non-conceptual. It's unique according to the person. Even if you are subject to teachings, from the great, 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 great masters of any tradition. You still haven't lived up to the task of the fundamental vehicle of transcendence. You still have to do your own walking. Even if we were in the, the uh, assembly of the Buddha, like Ananda was. The Buddha, for all of his skill and magnificence, Ananda never woke up after the Buddha died. We each have to do our own work. Even the Buddhas of the three times can only know it for themselves. Even these Buddhas of the three times, they're talking about our life. Our life with the past, present, future. Our life right here. Treasury of the teachings of the whole age cannot pl- explain it thoroughly. Clear-eyed, patch-robed monks cannot save themselves completely. Part of the wonder of the great mystical traditions is it is not found in books. The entire Tripitaka, all the thousands of volumes of the Tripitaka, 
cannot describe your own breath to. Do not know the taste of your own mouth. And so the Zen tradition, and two other traditions, keep emphasizing the taste in your own mouth, the feeling of your breath in your own nostrils, is so intimate, is so personal, is so vital, it can't be put in a book. And trying to put it in a book, of course, it goes dead. why we have to do this work ourselves. We have to do this investigation ourselves. We have to see what is alive ourselves. Nobody else can do it for us. To say the word Buddha is trailing mud and dripping water. To say the word Zen is a face full of shame. I love in in books I like. And he says, if you look at the Buddha as the Buddha, as a person of golden hue, whom you could look at for a long time, who speaks words elegantly, you could listen to for a long time, who has a, a form that is lovely to behold, whose behavior is pristine and lovely, wonderful. You're making the Buddha just to be an ordinary person. Just a particularly good ordinary person. You're making ourselves just an ordinary person. To particularize and say the Buddha is a thing, a thing which has a beginning, a middle, and an end, to say the Dharmakaya is a thing, is our own tightening the noose around our own. It's not about somebody else. It's not about if we do the right rites, the right rituals, we bow the right way, we have the right incense, we have the right this or that. We do have to have a container. We have this very nice, lovely container. But the essence of our life can never be found in that container. The container is simply a way that we can all practice together harmoniously to do this most intimate investigation. So please, continue this intimate investigation with a foundation knowing that you're already What you're looking for is not someplace else. And it's not something. It's something that you know intimately. And I hate to tell you, the harder part of practice is letting go of that. So we have one part of practice that we have to really get grounded in the great, miraculous, marvelous view and see the pristine luminescence of all things. And then there's a part of practice where we have to bring the entire ordinary, chaotic, messy world back in. Very interesting. Everything is the liveliness of the Dharmakaya. Everything. 
Oh, you have the perfect foundation. You have the perfect circumstances. You have the perfect person to work with to realize what you have the potential to realize. Do not doubt it.